Let's pray one more time before we hear God's word. Pray with me. Lord God, you tell us in your word that the unfolding of your words gives light. And it imparts understanding to the simple. Help us to remember that we are simple compared to you and your knowledge and your character and your ways. In your grace, Father, would you unfold this passage to us? Give us light. Help us see more of who you are, more of what you've called us to, what obedience looks like, who Christ is. And help us not just to see that light, Lord. Help us to feel its heat and to be warmed by it and to love you more, trust you more. Father, I pray for grace to to preach your Son, Christ. I pray for grace for those listening that they would hear you and obey. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What makes for a a worthy hospital surgeon? Somebody's going to go under the knife. What makes that surgeon worthy? Or what makes somebody worthy to be a banker, a financial accountant? What makes someone worthy to be a basketball coach? Or worthy to be an auto mechanic? What would make somebody worthy to be a real estate broker? What would make someone worthy to be a school principal? What makes someone worthy for the task that they have? By worthy, I just mean deserving, suitable, fit. They've got the merit, the best ability, the virtue, competency. Well, there was a question that was being asked 3,000 years ago. And that was the question, what makes a worthy king? What makes a worthy king? That question was asked 3,000 years ago because the nation of Israel, they were wedged between this crucial choice. They had to discern. It was a new question they'd never asked before. They had to discern who's a worthy king. They had one option, and that would be the current sitting but rejected king, Saul. Or option two, David, the anointed but king in waiting. Those were their two options. Here's some context of how the nation of Israel was even brought to that point of decision. First Samuel is a book that, that opens up with Hannah. She gives birth to Samuel. Samuel is her son. And it, the book opens up with his calling. And the book opens up with this transition, really, from the time of the judges. In Israel, in their history, the judges were these temporary guys, and there's even some, some women, that were raised up for a temporary moment to militarily lead the nation. But they didn't rule over the whole nation. They were just in one little pocket, and they would lead resistance there. But then after a few decades, they would die, and the nation kind of self-governed themselves. But then God would raise up another judge. And there was judge after judge after judge, no king or anything like that. But now when we get to the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel is the last in the line of the judges. He's also a prophet. And in this book, 1 Samuel, something unique happens. In chapter 8, kingship dawns on the nation. For the first time ever, they have a king. The reason the nation of Israel has a king 
is because they rejected God's kingship. They wanted a king like themselves. That happens in chapter 8. In chapter 9, they're given Saul. The Lord gives him them King Saul. Saul is handsome. He's wealthy. He's literally head and shoulders above everybody else. Outwardly speaking, he's the candidate they would have wanted. But there's a problem. King Saul repeatedly rejected the word of the Lord. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, we read that the prophet Samuel says this to Saul. Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Samuel then repeats this again three verses later because Saul's not getting it. You have rejected God's word, so God is rejecting you. This was a private moment, though. This wasn't public in front of the whole nation. But Saul knew at that moment the Lord had rejected him as king for his disobedience to God's word, repeated disobedience. But the whole nation of Israel doesn't know that yet. He's still the sitting king. At the same time, though, that Saul's being rejected, simultaneously God is raising up another man, David. David is the shepherd boy. In chapter 16, uh, God's prophet Samuel anoints David as the man God has provided for his people, this upcoming king. And although he's an unknown shepherd boy, he's the youngest of his sons, he's worthy. His heart is worthy. On the outside, he doesn't look like kingly material, but we're told something in connection with his anointing in chapter 16, verse 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And immediately after David is anointed, you know the story well. Chapter 17, he goes and he fights Goliath the giant, and he slays the giant. He's trusting in the Lord. And then the friction sets in between Saul that sitting king, and David, the king-elect, or the king who's in waiting. The friction happens in chapter 18, verse 7. Right after Goliath is killed, it says this, the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David has struck down his ten thousands. Oh my gosh, David's so much better than Saul. He's a better warrior. Saul hears this, he gets angry, he gets displeased, he gets jealous, he gets furious. From this moment on, he eyes David, and he decides he's going to put David down. There's tension in the rest of the book. The tension in the rest of this book is, when will the true king be recognized? Or will he be killed by the opposition? And 1 Samuel narrates this back and forth of Saul the hunter and David the hunted. This book narrates what God is doing, and it's evidencing the verdict God has already rendered. God has already anointed David, but again, that was a private moment with Samuel and his family, not in front of the whole nation. And God has already privately rejected Saul, but the nation still has a choice to make who they would follow and trust, who is worthy to be king, so this morning, we want to consider up close 
as if we're in the nation of Israel, who's worthy to be king? Who is worthy to be king? And we want to consider these details because they have implications for our lives today. So I want to invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22. 1 Samuel chapter 22. This is found on page 245 of the Bibles under the seats in front of you. 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. We're going to be highlighting the contrast of character of these two men. We're not going to get into the narrative so much of chapter after chapter of where they're moving, where they're going. We're going to look specifically at their character. What they say, what they do, what their agenda is, so we can see who is worthy. And we want to apply all this to our lives. But let's read together, 1 Samuel 22. It says this, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart. Go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath. Philistine. Central question that's provoked by this passage and it's raised up is this. Which man is worthy to be king? Which man is worthy to be king? The structure of this passage, it's quite straightforward. We've got five verses about David right below that, five verses about Saul, and the author is highlighting their actions and words, so their deeds, what they do, But it's written back to back here. And the emphasis of this structure is on the stark difference between the two. This is not the only place in the book this happens, though. At the very beginning, you don't have to turn there, the very beginning of 1 Samuel, Hannah's prayer that she speaks in chapter 2, she speaks of this reversal. How the Lord 
brings down those who are up high and he raises up those who are low. It's all about this reversal, this contrast. And that sets a trajectory for the rest of the book. And then throughout 1 Samuel, we see this almost like split-screen television, if you will. You know what it's like to watch a sporting event. The camera shows the coach and then what the players are doing, or two coaches because one's really mad and one's not so mad, showing the contrast of their demeanor. That's what happens all through this book, this contrast. And so right here, this structure, these ten verses, shows us in high definition this contrast between David and and Saul. Everything about them is different here in this passage. Even the physical landscape. It's like the author's inviting us. Look at the dissimilarity between these guys. They're vivid polar opposites. So think for a moment. At the cave and by the tree. At the cave we've got David. By the tree we have Saul, right? At the cave, David is brought low. He gets even lower still because he's going to make a descent down to Moab, which is by the Dead Sea the lowest place on earth. So David is low this entire passage. Saul is up high. It says in verse 6 that he's sitting on the height, or some translations say on the hill. He's at, he's at a high place. He's not just sitting under a tree in the shade. He's up on a, on a hill. So David's low. Saul is high. David is in darkness, but Saul's in broad daylight. David is compassionate here in his leadership. Saul is threatening and harsh. With David in this passage, we see it's okay to be vulnerable. With Saul here, we see it's only okay to seem strong and secure and have it all together. With David, we see safety and refuge. With Saul, we see dangerous instability. Such a contrast. The narrator wants us to take note of this contrast. So the two main points of the sermon are going to be contrasting points. And my prayer is that we will see something of the type of worthy King David is and how unworthy Saul is, and we'll do what the Scriptures want us to do. We'll apply it to our lives. We'll lay these truths right up next to our own lives and challenge ourselves with God's Word. So two points. Two points today. Point number one. This is verses 1 through 5. Point number one, a king like David is who you need. A king like David is who you need. Point number two will be verses 6 through 10. And point number two is this, a king like Saul is who you should renounce. A king like Saul is who you should renounce. And before we get into these two points, I've, I've got to make this clear. This helped me so much as a young Christian learning how to read the Old Testament. In Romans 15, 4, it says, Everything written in former days was written for our instruction. That through the encouragement, through the endurance that the Scriptures give, we might have hope. So these aren't just stories to look at. This is instruction for our lives. And another passage that helps Christians read the Old Testament is Luke 24, where Jesus interprets all the Bible, the law, the prophets, the writing, according to him. He says it all points to him. Jesus is the fulfillment and focus of the Old Testament. And I want to go ahead and say at the beginning here that what we're seeing of David 
It's a pointer to Christ. David, in the scriptures, is a type of Christ. In other words, the events and circumstances and character of him has this escalating prophetic purpose, escalating value in the scriptures, typology, to point us to Christ. Just like David kills a giant, well, Christ kills our greatest enemy, the champion of sin and death. He defeats it at the cross. Just like David provides safety, Christ, he's safety par excellence. There's refuge in Christ. He's our rock. Just like David was a promised king, and he's waiting, he's the king in waiting, he's not yet recognized, even though God sees him as king. And while he's waiting, he's opposed and persecuted. People are trying to destroy him. We see this escalating significance with Christ. He is God's anointed king. He is operating in ministry. He's redeeming the world. And yet people are trying to kill Jesus Christ. So in this sermon, these points that we're going to hear about David, they're points about Jesus Christ. So point number one, a king like David is who you need. What's the evidence that David's worthy for kingship? Well, three aspects. He's approachable to the distressed. He provides safety for the vulnerable, and he has concern for God's word. So first, first aspect, he, he gives those who are uh, distressed an approachable spirit. People can come to him. Look at verse 1 there. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. That word Adullam might mean refuge. And as dark as this cave would be, snakes, spiders, bats, whatever's in the cave, David's not afraid. He's a shepherd boy. He's used to sleeping out under the stars. He's not afraid of the animals and the critters. This cave was a refuge to him. He's on the run. Saul's trying to kill him. But this cave was a refuge because there's only one way somebody can come in. He doesn't have to look all around him. There's only one entrance. It's a refuge. But it provides this refuge even from the heat of the sun and the storms and the rain and the wind but it provides this mental refuge. It's quiet. It's quiet in a cave. And while David is there, before we can even get halfway through verse 1, the silence in the cave is broken with familiar voices. Look at the second half of verse 1. His brothers and all his father's house heard it. They went down there to him. 1 Samuel 16 tells us he has seven brothers. So it's his parents, all of his brothers, maybe some sisters, all of their children. It's a family reunion in the cave. They come to David because they're in a susceptible position because Saul is turning on them just as he turns on David. But they can approach David in their very condition of vulnerability. How does David maintain an approachable demeanor when his silence and solitude is interrupted? Have you ever had those moments in life where you just need some quiet, you just need to relax, and somebody busts in and interrupts that quiet that you had? How does David keep his cool here? You don't have to turn there, but I want to tell you that Psalm 142 and Psalm 57, both of these psalms, the the superscription of the psalm, says that David wrote these psalms when he was in this very cave. At Psalm 142, at first David feels like everybody's forgotten him. 
He says, there's none who takes notice of me. There's no refuge that remains for me. No one cares for my soul. I cry out to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. And his prayer is answered. His family shows up. But there's more, vo- more voices. It's not just his family. Some less familiar voices. Look at verse 2. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, or some translations say discontented, they gathered to him. So this is a motley crew, is it not? Misery loves company. We hear that often. These folks here, they know that it's better to be in misery and flee to David than to be in misery alone. They recognize if David's in a dire situation of life and death, people are trying to take him out. Well, he can empathize. He can understand what I'm going through. This makes David approachable. They believe he's going to understand their grief. David's trials allow him to be well acquainted with grief. And so he's a magnet for others in their dire situations. They feel like he's going to understand them. And we know David's being approachable here for at least two reasons. One, no one is refused entry. There's no bouncer at the door. You don't have the right smile. You don't have the right face. You didn't pay the entry fee. You can't come in. No one's refused entry. And secondly, once inside, no one's kicked out. No one is told your situation is too grim. So what are they doing in the cave? They obviously stay near to David and gather to him. They don't say hello and check in and, oh, David's not giving me a free handout, so I'm going I'm to head out. What are they doing in the cave? Well, Psalm 57 tells us. David's praying to God. He's calling upon the Lord's mercy and provision. He's speaking truth. He's being real about the danger and evil pursuing him. He's keeping his heart steadfast in the Lord. He's even singing and playing the lyre and the harp. So apparently a family member brought him a musical instrument. Psalm 57 shows us David is trusting in the Lord, which makes him approachable to others. Think about your own life for a moment. Do others find you approachable? Christians are made in the image of God, and when we become believers, we are more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Does that description of David characterize your life? Do people come to you when they're in distress? Or you can flip it around the other way. Not just do people come to you when you're in distress. Where do you go when you're in distress? These people came to David. What keeps you from running to the greater king, Jesus? How much more Jesus than David here? He's worthy. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Christ. None of these people clean themselves up first. They're in bitter distress and anguish and debt. Nobody cleaned themselves up. So I think something for our own lives here, some low-hanging fruit that we can take is this. You can go to Jesus in the midst of your mess. It would make me tear up right now to start meditating on, on the messes in my own life, the messes in some of your lives when you graciously share them with me. 
the messes in our families, the messes in our past, the uncertainty of are we going to make a mess of our future if I, if I can't decide the right thing now. You can come to Christ in the midst of your mess. I don't know what it is for you. It might be depression. It might be panic attacks. It might be anxiety. It might be some kind of addiction or pills or suicidal thoughts or hallucinations. I don't know what the darkness is for you. Maybe it's your family. There's some divorce happening right next to you. Maybe it's financial failures. Maybe it's just deep bitterness. Maybe it's just apathy that's like a dark cloud that won't leave you. God is calling you to flee to Christ in the midst of that mess, that darkness, and that weight. That's what these people did here. It pains me to think that some Christians think they have to have this squeaky, clean, neat, tidy, devotional time with the Lord. And unless they have that, they can't really go to Him in prayer. You can go to Christ, whether you're high or brought low. He's approachable. He accepts the vulnerable way more than David does. A king like David is is who you need. But ask yourself, is a king like David who I need? Do you really feel your need? The gospel is clear. God made you and me, all of us, in his image. We were supposed to know him and worship him and serve him and obey him and reflect him to others. But we've gone our own way. We've decided to be the captain of our own souls. We sin. We fall short of God's glory, and the wages of our sin is death, not just physical death, but eternal death and separation. Because God is good, he will punish sin, and he will not let sinners dwell in his presence unless they are cleansed and made right and made new and whole. But in our pride and rebellion, we don't go to God for our restoration and forgiveness. We hold on to our sin. But the scriptures are clear. If we let go of our sin and turn to God, then everything that's true about Jesus becomes true for us. His perfect life that he lived, the perfect thoughts, the excellent thoughts, the excellent morality, the excellent obedience, all of his perfection, his death, where God poured out all his wrath on him, his bloody death on the cross, his time in the grave, his resurrection. All of that is credited to you when you trust in him and you're united to him by faith. It is true that you need a king like David, you need Christ, but I'm asking you, can you say with your own lips, out of your own heart, I need that king. Is that how you live? Go to Christ. What happens when somebody turns to Christ? What happens to these people when they gather to David in their low state? Well, the end of verse 2 tells us, it says there, he became commander over them. David is so good. He does more than just share in their grief, but he leads them out of it. He enlists them in his kingdom work. These are the people who would become his troops, his soldiers. He became their leader, their light, their commander, the one they would follow for hope and purpose and guidance. Their marching orders came from him from this point on. 
And God used their grief to connect them to David. God's going to use your grief, if you let it, connect you to Christ. I don't know when he will lead you out of your darkness, but he will lead those who gather to him. He will be commander over them. Christ will be commander over you sooner or later. But David does more here for the vulnerable than just being a listening ear or just a friend or even a leader. He provides genuine, real safety. So second aspect, he provides safety and refuge for the vulnerable. There's this tender concern here in verse 3. He's shielding his parents from the intensity of Saul's pursuit and distressing circumstances. David went from there to Mizpah, it says in verse 3. He's going to Moab. And he says to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So verses 3 and 4 there, they're saturated with that safety David gives. Mizpah, sounds like a weird word. That just means place of watching. It's a watchtower. It's a place with this secure vantage point. It was safe. But in order to get to Moab, David would have to travel all the way down to the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth, to protect his parents. Why is he going to Moab, though? Well, David has Moabite blood. Remember the story of Ruth and Boaz? Ruth and Boaz, they have a son named Obed. Obed has Jesse. Jesse has David. And Ruth is a Moabite. So David's great-grandmother is from this region. He has some ties and some connections here. And just like Moab is an enemy of Saul, David leverages this opportunity to protect his parents. So it's not a random haphazard journey. He doesn't just pick a place on the map and say, we'll go here. It's thoughtful, it's wise, it's secure. He acts for them even at cost to himself. The cost of time and energy and resources. David doesn't just drop them off and say, you guys figure it out. I've got to get back to this. He personally talks with the king of Moab and makes secure dwelling for his parents. How are you doing treating your family? How are you doing caring for them, especially aging parents, but just your family in general? Is your character in any way challenged to look more like David's here? Those with aging parents takes a lot of care. A lot of members of our family take a lot of care. But just like David, it took time and energy. It it cost him something to care well for them. It's going to happen in your own life. If we're honest, we want to be able to take care of our family in an easy way. Or we want them to kind of take care of themselves. But that's not the way of Christ. That's not the way of David here. David doesn't even let the distressing situation of somebody trying to kill him neglect his family responsibilities. We all know the excuse, hey, work is really tough right now. Husbands say this sometimes. Work's, I got a lot going on at work. And we start making excuses of why we're not caring well for our family. David didn't let a distressing situation crowd out his concern for family. I'm especially grateful for men like Robert Clark and Paul Robinson. I remember watching them and hearing of them and hearing them tell me of ways they've been caring for Ted Council when Ted's health was tough. 
And I praise God for moments like that. Because Paul Robinson and Robert Clark, they wouldn't raise their hand and say, hey, do you see how I'm being like Christ? That's not the thing that they're trying to proclaim. They're loving their brother. But if we have eyes of faith, what we see in moments like that is, wow, this person is imaging Christ and how they care for family. Not just their own family, but the family of faith. What a picture. What a picture. The safety that David provides here, he's really just living out the fifth commandment, the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. That's the motive. That's why David's doing this. So it brings us to this third aspect. His concern is always for God and God's word more than himself. This is verses 5 and a little bit of verse 3. Look at verse 5. It says, The prophet Gad said to David, Don't remain in the stronghold. Depart. Go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Gad was the spiritual advisor to David. Saul, he lost his spiritual advisor, Samuel. Even though Samuel still hangs around, Saul doesn't want to listen to him. There was always a prophet that would speak truth to God's king, reminding them of God's word. At this time, God would speak by the word of the covenant, by the law, or by the mouth of the prophets. And here, we see God revealing his guidance for David. God is speaking here through Gad. But the revealed word of God in this instance there in verse 5, that's pretty counterintuitive. That stronghold would have been of great military advantage, strength to withstand Saul's pursuit. But when the prophet of God spoke, David had concern for the word and obeyed. This is significant because David's trustworthiness, whether or not he's worthy to be king, it's displayed here. He has more concern for God than his own personal comfort and ease. He moves when God says to move. He listens when God speaks. God is on his heart and lips all the time. Even back there in verse 3, did you notice the way he spoke to that king in Moab? He said, till I know what God will do for me. So he's trusting God to be his deliverer, his refuge, the one that works in the midst of his situations. God's word and God himself seems to be his highest priority. You need a king like this because a king like this follows God's word. So to follow him and be united to him is to be one-on-one correlation. You're, You're following God's word. That's why we need a king like Christ, who perfectly obeyed the word. That's why these Israelites need a king like David, because to follow him is to follow God's word. So David is presented here as extremely virtuous, obedient, attentive to the Lord. He is worthy to be a king. Just from this one little glimpse, we see that. But as we're in awe of David, we drop down to verse 6. The camera shifts. We're face to face with Saul by the tree. Here's the contrast of kings right here. So point number two, a king like Saul is who you should renounce. If the first point is David is the one you need, we're about to see here, a king like Saul, you should renounce him. Here's the evidence that Saul is not worthy for kingship. Three aspects again. Number one, he's distant when near. Number two, he breathes out threats. He's unstable. And number three, he regards none but self. 
So the first aspect, he's distant even when he's near. He's not approachable. This is seen in verses 6, 9, and 10. Look at verse 6. Put your eyes there on verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. On the surface, this seems kind of royal and dignified. On the surface, it seems tranquil. There's a man sitting there in the shade under a tree. All of his servants are about him. He's holding a spear, that symbol of might and power and authority. And there's a man speaking confidently while others are listening. But what a mirage of loyalty. What a mirage of dignity. What a mirage, a cloak for pride. A closer look at these details here shows why Saul is distant even when he's near. Think about it. Here we have Saul sitting, and like David, men are gathered around him, but something is different. Saul is not approachable. He's not inviting. Where does he keep his men? They're not under the tree with him. They're standing about him. King Saul thinks it best to be sitting while his men are standing. Saul is sitting under a tamarisk tree. So this is what we might call a salt cedar today. If you're not into trees, let me just mention why this is important. A salt cedar or a tamarisk tree like this, it's a tree that remains evergreen and flowering. It can handle salty soil, but it's not a massively huge tree like some oak tree or some redwood. Some people would say it's like a little shrub. Maybe it would get tall enough to have some shade. So what this means is Saul is relaxing and sitting He's in the shade. All of his men around him are in the sun. They're baking in the heat. Saul's not approachable. You can't go sit next to him under this tree. He's got a spear in his hand. That symbol of power and strength, it's actually a picture of insecurity and pride for Saul. This is the same spear he hurled twice at David and missed. He hurled it once at his own son, Jonathan, And he missed. He's got really bad aim. But still, nobody's going to sit next to him when he's got the spear in his hand. Maybe he'll hit somebody sometime. So Saul is distant from his men relationally, even when they're near him in proximity. They know of his violent temper, his short fuse, his rage. As long as he's gripping that spear, his men can't unwind and relax, even for a second around him. He's different. He's distant. You can't can't trust him. Doeg the Edomite speaks there in verse 9, and it's just worth mentioning, the previous chapter said he's Saul's chief herdsman, and Doeg responds with this new information, but this is significant about how Saul's not approachable, because instead of immediately telling Saul about David's whereabouts, Doeg waits almost in silence until Saul gives this rant, this speech. And then he feels okay to share it. Saul's not the kind of guy you come to with personal information. But there's something worse than Saul's lack of approachability. It's his ugly threats and instability. Look look at verses 7 and 8. This is the second aspect. He's not worthy to be king because he's so threatening and unstable. He's not safe. Look at verse 7. Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse... 
Give every one of you fields and vineyards. Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Ouch. What stale and life-sapping words are these? It's so abrasive, so off-putting. So any shade from the hot sun these men would have wanted to have, you know, the spear's keeping them away from Saul. The hot, stuffy air coming out of his mouth, they probably feel better in the sun than, than having that come out of his mouth and being near to it. It's just poison. It's toxic coming out of his mouth. He's not pleasant to be around. As the king, if he's worthy, he's supposed to rule in righteousness, uses authority to bless and guide others, but he's threatening here. He's speaking prideful accusations and complaints, threats, conspiracy. There's, there's paranoia that sets in here. It's all oozing to the surface on Saul. The meaning of verse 7 there is that Saul is legitimately unstable and volatile because he actually states that his own men, his family, have conspired against him. He attributes false motives. He betrays the fact that his, his own son Jonathan doesn't even trust him. His own son doesn't see him as worthy. His pride sees the men in front of him as conspirators. His instability blames them for accepting some supposed bribe from David, either possessions or prestige. He's basically saying, guys, David can't enrich your lives like I can. So whatever he gave you, go ahead and tell me because I can do better than that. You don't need to conspire against me. He shows further instability that he's not safe because he claims that David's seeking to harm him. This is a lie. It's a flat lie. The reverse is actually true. It's going to be proven later, time and again, when David doesn't put his hand out against Saul, even though he has opportunity. So Saul's threats, his pride, it blinds him to the obvious reality of the situation. It's venomous here. It's manipulative. He plays the victim card. He's showing he's not worthy because of these threats and instability. And if it couldn't get any worse... It actually does. Notice the pride in verse 8. It's the third aspect. He regards none but himself. So these words get even uglier the closer we look. He's whining and complaining. Notice how many times the word me is mentioned in verse 8. That all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Me, 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 me. That's all Saul can think about. That's the only thing on his mind. His self-pity is suffocating here. His words are saturated in pride. They care nothing for those under his authority inner authority is all that Saul will listen to. This personal autonomy that's the chief captain of his own soul, it threatens us as well. We see how ugly it is in other people, but just like Saul here, we are often blind to it when it's coming out of our own mouth, coming out of our own heart. 
So ask yourself this question. Do you talk about yourself, me, myself, and I? Do you, do you offer your opinions and thoughts when they're not needed or they're not asked for? Careful. We don't want to be in league with, with Saul here. It's going to get worse. There's one other thing to consider. The worst thing is not just the me, 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 and the threats. The worst, most pitiful part of, of Saul's unworthiness He doesn't mention the Lord at all. If you were to scan back through these words and look for the name the Lord or God, it's nowhere. It's striking to note what's absent from Saul's mouth. Any mention of the Lord. This is why regarding ourself and having pride that's unchecked is so highly disruptive and deadly. It keeps us from God. It keeps us from imaging God to others. This is the kingdom of self-rule right here in Saul. We see it. It doesn't seem that ugly in his own eyes, though. I mean, imagine if you were Saul. He's the one sitting, so he's the one in comfort. He's the one served, and his men are standing around him. He's the one with what looks like power and position. He's got the shade. He's got the spear. He's the one speaking while others remain silent. He's the one setting the agenda. This is what we love about our sin. Sin promises this control, this comfort, this immediate benefit, doesn't it? That's why we love it. But where does all this lead to? If you trust your own agenda and follow your own intuitions, relying on yourself, you just let your personal autonomy reign supreme. If you stay in the driver's seat, Consider where it ends. We don't hear of another tamarisk tree until the last chapter of 1 Samuel, the very last verse. It mentions Saul under a tamarisk tree again, only this time King Saul is not holding his spear. He's not sitting in the shade. This time he's underneath a tamarisk tree as a pile of bones in burial. This is where the kingdom of self will lead you every time to death and decay, just rotting. So the choice is yours, brothers and sisters. This contrast between David and Saul is meant to affect your life. Every single day, you have a choice of what king you're going to give your allegiance to, what king you see as worthy. And even beyond every day, We all know what it's like to trust God for a moment and some situation comes and we think, I'm going to flip the script right now. I'm going to be in control here. I'm going to be in charge. Walking by the Spirit in the Christian life is a daily daily distillation of this fact. Who do you see as worthy to be your king in every moment? If you're not a believer this morning, if you're a guest with us, I pray that you would look to Christ. What can you see in Jesus that would be untrustworthy, that would not be worthy for him to have control of your life? May it it not be just the blinding pride that you've got that you can't see that. Let's help one another kill pride. David is a king that they needed, and a king like David is who you need, Jesus Christ. Do you know your need for him today?
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this chance to hear your word. We pray, Lord, that we would draw near and find comfort to the Davidic king, Jesus Christ himself. I pray, Lord, that we would we would relish in the fact that you are our commander. You lead us. Awaken us to the danger of pride, the danger of self-regard. Help us to renounce being the captain of our own souls. By your Holy Spirit, help us to obey this. Thank you, Lord, for showing us your son, why he's worthy to be king. It's in his name we pray.